Our first scripture passage is from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, read from the English Standard Version. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may also that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and the power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of the Lord. Our second reading is from Ephesians 1 and is from the New Living Translation. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called his holy people, who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I pray also that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. The church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere with himself. The word of the Lord. Okay, so here you have our imagery for today. You've been looking at it, wondering what it is. Um, It's, of course, going to be a metaphor for something, so let's just jump right into that. What I want to use this for is an example of how we see life, ourselves, meaning and value and purpose, what it's all about. What the Bible seems to claim is this, that apart from God, apart from God, when we view life, what we see is, well, what do you see here? A crumpled cloth sitting on a stool. And so this is life as we observe it and think about it. We try to make something of it. This includes our relationships, our career, our academics, um, the suffering we've gone through, and this is about as good as it gets. That's reality to us. This is the only reality we know. The Bible says apart from God, this is how we see reality and we think it's real. The Bible claims 
that we can't really see as intended apart from God. What we need is the Spirit, the Spirit of God to give life to our eyes, to see the way things really are, to uncover what's actually there so that we can see the fullness of life as it's meant to be. There's a big difference. But until the blinders are taken off by the Holy Spirit, this is the reality we think is real. When somebody who is a Christian talks about there's so much more, there's so much hope to be had, there's a future, there's a reality that is beyond what we can imagine, all we see is this and say, what are you talking about? Many people have studied Christianity at the highest academic level for years, and this is what they see. And my guess is, even in this room, many of you who have been in church for years or decades hear the Christian message and you still are wondering, eh, is that it? You're seeing this. God Knowing God, saving faith cannot be discovered by investigation alone. Your human cognition can only get you here. You recognize the shape. But that's about it. But for believers who have put their faith in Christ, the Bible says the Spirit of God has entered us and allows us to understand and see and trust and live seeing real reality. And this is Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus as we're in our second week in Ephesians. Paul's prayer is for the spirit who dwells in them to continue as they live to give them wisdom and insight and revelation so that they might see more and more and more and live by the reality, the real reality of who God is and what he has done not the world and our feelings and thoughts that we tend to dwell in. So let's read what Paul prays and enter into it a little bit more and see where we get tripped up. Paul prays this, or he says this, starting in verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, so he's talking to Christians, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's my prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, so God, that God, my prayer is that God may give you a spirit or the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. So his prayer for them is for wisdom and revelation in the eyes of their, that the Spirit would open up wisdom and revelation in the eyes of their heart. And like we did last week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to piece through a couple of these terms and see where they lead us. That word wisdom and revelation are not human-born by biblical standards. Wisdom isn't just being smart with your money necessarily, for example. Wisdom, according to the Bible, is understanding God's purposes and intent for creation. It's being able to discern right from wrong very clearly and be able to apply it in life. Revelation, the next word that's up there, talks about God's self-disclosure. 
Revelation is not something we come to on our own. Christianity is a, is a, is a religion that talks about God coming to us, not us figuring out God. God's self-disclosure of who he is and what he's done. And if you could put the verses back up there for me and just keep them up for a little bit. And the eyes of your heart being enlightened. The heart was the center of a person. It still is. We talk about your heart and we usually mean emotion. In the ancient world, your heart was your, your emotional place, but also your cognitive thinking place and your will or volition, you know, what I want or desire. So basically, it's all of you. It's the center of you and drives you. Where your heart is is what will drive you. It defined you and identified what you were about. So if we put all these things together, Paul is saying, I, I'm praying that the Spirit of God will give you wisdom understanding God, that he would reveal himself to you, and that your life would be transformed. His prayer is for a life-transforming awareness of who God is and what he's done. And that's where we get these two words up here, know and knowledge. That basically defines the entire prayer. Paul's prayer is that they would know something. And we've talked about it in here. The Hebrew understanding of knowledge or know, there were two different terms that are used in both Greek and in Hebrew, and there are two understandings in a Semitic world. One is knowledge of facts, like you know mathematics, you know about something, information. The other is relational or experiential. If you still have a King James Version, it says Adam knew Eve. It wasn't just he knew how tall she was. It's talking about relational depth and connection. So Paul's prayer, the main emphasis of his prayer is that you would know something. That you would know God. And that includes truths and facts about God, which is why we study scripture, to understand more fully truth but it's also to know him experientially and relationally. And academics and investigation alone can't get you there. Paul's prayer is that we would know God in every way, thoroughly, deeply, and personally. And it's the difference between knowing about, say, Abraham Lincoln. He was tall, liked the theater a little too much, and believed in a sovereign God and knowing your best friend. My best friend in high school was the sort of guy that you could punch in the ribs and he wouldn't punch back, it was great. <laughs> he was laughable and huggable at the same time. He was fun to hang out with because he would talk about anything but also be glad to be silent. Listening to music, going for a ride, go out. I knew him. I've read about Abraham Lincoln. Paul's prayer is that we would know God, like somebody we can study in history, but also like a best friend, to know him in every way. Think about what Paul is praying for the, for the Ephesians here. Paul does not pray for blessings on them in the way that we tend to pray for blessings, right? We tend to pray for, for health, for success, 
for ease of life, and I'm not saying don't pray for those, but that's not what Paul prays. When he has a prayer for the Ephesians, his prayer for them is that they would know, realize, and live by the blessings that are already ours in Christ Jesus. This suggests that what can feel like a lack of God's blessing in our life may just be a failure to grasp, to trust, and to live by what God has already done and what he has already given to us. And so again, going back to the the basics here, Paul's prayer is for a life-transforming awareness and experience of God, their eyes of their heart opened up by the Holy Spirit so that so that they may know, and then he tells us what they should know. So that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Let's take these a piece at a time. So the three things that Paul's prayer for us, for the Ephesians, and therefore for us as Christians, is hope, riches, and power. Let's start with hope. The hope to which he has called you. I want you to know the hope to which he has called you. And at first, this is recalling what we talked about last week. If you were with us last week, we looked at the verses before this, which talked about the basis for what God has done for for the people of God. He says, you are chosen You are adopted children of God. You have been redeemed and forgiven. God views you as holy and blameless, and you are an heir of eternal glory. Your hope is in that stuff that God has already done for you. And when Paul uses the word hope, he's very aware of the word he's using. And the problem is, in English, it's a bad word. Well, not a bad word as in the words that kids are thinking of when you think of bad words. But It's a word that doesn't have the meaning that it does in the Bible. Hope, for us, means being optimistic or wishful. In the fall of my ninth grade year, I hoped I would make the freshman basketball team. I really wanted to, but there were some realities pushing against me. And I knew it was not guaranteed. It was, I hoped I would make it. I wanted it, I wished it would happen, but I had no certainty. I didn't make the basketball team. Biblical hope is very different from the way we tend to use the word hope. Biblical hope is the certainty of the future based on God's word and promises. And the better equivalent is something like this. It's like a kid in early December hoping Christmas vacation comes soon. They know it's going to happen. There's no doubt that on December 19th or 21st, they're going to be out of school for two weeks. And they're hopeful. It's affecting their outlook. It's changing the way they approach each day. They can get through the next seven days, six days, five days at school because of their hope being set on that Christmas vacation. It's going to happen. It's not uncertain. Biblical hope is the equivalent of saying, I hope the sun rises tomorrow and living in light of that. 
The gospel calls us redeemed children of God, destined for heaven. And the Bible makes this claim. The future promises of God, the future promises of God for us are as certain and sure as if they already happened in the past. So the hope that Paul is praying that they would know is how God views us, what he's already done for us, and what he has in store for us. And all of that should be radically reorienting to our perspective and priorities in life, how we deal with suffering and how we approach success. That's the hope he wants us to know. The second thing he wants us to know is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Years ago, when I had read this passage, my mind instantly went to our inheritance. And I want to think just for a moment about inheritance because it's an incredibly important part of the ancient world. We, we gloss over it because many of us have never received an inheritance and probably won't. But in that ancient world, your inheritance was everything. Remember, it was not an economy that was upwardly mobile. So whatever your future prospects were, were based on who your father was. And that included land and cattle. That was everything. That was the entire family's wealth, land and cattle. All your wealth was bound up in what was going to be your inheritance. It also determined your social position. The size of your land, the amount of your inheritance determined where you fit in the village, in the clan, in the nation. Your inheritance was your security, your status, all of your hopes and future bound up in them. And in that sense, inheritance was actually the most valuable thing to you in the ancient world, to your family, and even to the village itself. And notice what our passage says. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? We tend to think of inheritance in a biblical sense as what we're going to inherit. We inherit heaven. And earlier in verses 11 through 14, Paul talked about that. Your inheritance is heaven. One day you will, you will receive heaven just because you are a child of God. But here, that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about the opposite of that, which is God's inheritance. It says his inheritance. And the commentators agree. His inheritance means that something is God's inheritance. And of course, what is his inheritance? The saints. That means anyone who believes in Jesus Christ is God's inheritance. God who owns everything, who created all things, who has more knowledge than all the academies out there, more money than all the billionaires put together, who has more power than every president and prime minister. He has everything. His most valuable possession is you. Do you know that? We are infinitely valuable to God. I wonder if you have ever felt unworthy or less than others when you compare yourself. 
Maybe you have a lot of self-confidence, and so you've never felt that way. But my guess is you've at least at some point in your life felt sinful, guilty, or ashamed. You're glad that no one knows your inner thoughts, your shameful secrets, the things you've done or possibly been done to you. the sorts of things we try to hide from one another. And it's the sorts of things that Satan brings up in our inner dialogue. Who are you to claim to be a Christian? You hypocrite. You liar. Who are you to tell somebody else about your faith? Why should your friends even like you? What if your spouse actually knew about you? The thing is this, God knows. He knows everything. He knows everything you've ever done and everything that's been done to you. And he knows your future failures too. He knows all of it. And he considers you his prized possession. You are his inheritance. When the proverbial house is burning down, you are what he is going to bring out. Because you're what matters most to him. How do we live letting this gospel truth control our thoughts, our view of ourself, and not Satan, or our sin, or our secrets? How do we live into that Awareness that God knows us and considers us his inheritance, his most prized possession. Paul's prayer is that they would know the hope to which they have been called, the riches, God's, God's valuing of them as his inheritance, and thirdly, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might. Four times in here, Paul uses synonyms for the word power. Power working great and might, and he also pounds on, expands it with immeasurable and greatness. It's almost like, in this instance, Paul is lacking words for God's power for us. And so he just compounds a bunch of synonyms, and it's one of the problems that often happens in the Bible is that language falls short of describing God. It, there's just not enough words. We can't comprehend it. And so he uses a bunch of terms to say, you know, God's power, 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 power. It's really powerful. It's God. It's all-powerful. And it's yours. Now he expands it, and gives us clarity in the verses that follow when he says, this power is what he worked in Christ Jesus, this is verse 20 through 23, what he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So you want to know what power is? Well, he's already demonstrated it. He raised Christ from the dead. He seated him at his right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion 
and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God's power for us has already been demonstrated in Christ being raised from the dead, which means the work of salvation is finished. There's nothing more we need to do. His death on the cross for our sins was done. He said it is finished, was laid in the tomb, and when he was raised from the dead, it was the vindication that it was finished. Nothing more needs to be done by any of us. And he has been seated. That means he is Lord. No question, no contest. He is above all things. Everything has been put under him. He is the head of everything, even the church. Christ's rule and authority are what Paul uses to give us an understanding of our power. It is Christ's ruling and reigning is the source of God's power toward us or for us. And so, as several commentators put it, there's some continuity between what God did in Christ, raised, seated, complete rule and reign, and what God is doing in and for believers. And on one level, because the Spirit dwells in us, God's resurrection power is available every day. But if you want to see this played out in anyone's life, it's when they come to faith. The Bible makes it clear that we are spiritually dead. That's what our Ephesians passage said that we confess as our creed today. Every one of us is dead spiritually. And we need God to bring us to life. It is the power of God's resurrecting of Christ that happens. If you believe in Christ... If you actually put your trust in him at some point in your life, you've experienced the power of resurrection. There is nothing smarter in you. There's nothing inherently qualifying in you. There's nothing good in you or me that gets us there. It is dead made alive. If you don't believe in Christ... If you're here today and you're not quite there, you don't need me to convince you. You need God to raise you. And I can't do that. The continuity between what God has done in Christ, the power that is demonstrated there in our lives, I think the best continuity is that there is power in living out of the reality of Christ's rule and reign. That we recognize Christ is risen and Christ reigns. Everything has been done and it's all under his authority. And we live by that rather than what we think or see or feel or observe. That is incredibly powerful because it means Satan and sin and even death have been defeated. Sin does not need to rule us anymore. It has lost. Nor does crippling guilt. You have been forgiven. We do not need to live in fear of death or of any powers in this world 
or any spiritual powers. So, look, don't be anxious over who becomes president. Don't fear if it's the wrong person. Christ is on the throne. Live out of that reality. There's power in what God has called us to, enabled us to be. He, Christ, is the head of the church. We are his body. That means there's a calling for us to reveal God to the world. As the body reveals the person, we are the body of Christ so that the world can actually see, feel, experience God. When we live with Christ as our head, we follow him into the places that he wants us to go as the people of God. We step into areas of sin and darkness and evil and brokenness and poverty in this world. We bring the light of Christ and make him known and seen. That is power to bring down Roman empires, to transform the entire world one martyr at a time. That's power. And there's power if we live in the hope and joy that God promises. When we live out of the reality of who we are in Christ and what we will one day be in heaven. John Newton, the pastor and hymn writer, said if we really knew the future glory that God has for us, it would make the best times leavable and the worst times bearable. If we lived out of the reality of God's glory for us, who we are and where we are going, the best parties, the best vacations, the greatest successes and victories would be leavable, and the worst of times would be bearable. Hope, our value, the power. Don't we already know this? Don't we know these things to be true? Sometimes, sometimes I do. Sometimes I live out of that reality. But more often we don't live in the reality of who God is and what he's done for us appropriating it in our daily life. Richard Lovelace, theologian, in his famous book, Dynamics of the Spiritual Life, put it this way. He wrote for us, this is how we tend to live. Only a fraction of Christians are appropriating the work of Christ in their lives. Below the surface, many are deeply guilt-ridden and insecure. We tend to start each day with our personal security resting not on the accepting love of God or the sacrifice of Christ, but on our present feelings or recent achievements. Since these arguments will not quiet our conscience, we are inevitably moved to either discouragement or self-righteousness. Few know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon the gospel's declaration you are accepted. 
The main issue is that while Jesus is our Savior, we have other functional saviors. That is, things we turn to each day to give us what Christ alone is meant to give us. So while this talks about finding our hope and our value and our power in God and what he's done for us, where do we find our hope? Good health, financial security, our kids and their future, that's where we place our hopes. Where do we determine our value? Where do we seek our worth? Career, grades, our friends' love of us, our spouse's words of affirmation? Where do we derive power? What motivates us and drives us? People's praise and acceptance? Unless we are living with Christ as our true Lord, our true head, and our daily Savior, we are not tapping into the fullness of what God has to offer us. We're living as if a crumpled cloth is reality instead of experiencing the roses of life now and eternally. It's hard to do this, but what we're called to do and what Paul is praying for is that we would believe what God says about us in Scripture is more true and more real than what we think, feel, or observe. What God says about me and my future is more real than what I'm feeling today, what I'm thinking, or even what I can observe. So let's make Paul's prayer our prayer as we close, that the Spirit of God would open the eyes of our heart and bring us the transforming knowledge and awareness of who God is and what he has done so that we can live in that hope and value and power that is ours in Christ. Let's pray. God, I pray for each of us that your spirit dwelling in us would open our hearts and minds that we might know the hope that we have in you, the way you value us because of Christ and the power that is available to us so that we might live in the assurance of the risen and reigning Jesus, our Savior and Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.